Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the White House and National Security Correspondent for the New York Times, David Sanger, to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, smith.ai, Raycon, and Real Paper. We really thank you. You can check in our show notes, too. We really thank you for supporting these sponsors. It makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, so much happening, but the, one of the big news this week is Stephen Breyer is going to step down pending uh, confirmation of a replacement from the Supreme Court. Uh, he has had an incredibly distinguished run on the court. He was a Clinton appointment, an old Ted Kennedy guy. The only thing I disagree with Steve Breyer on, I think, is that the court's not a Republican right-wing court. They seem to be eager to overturn almost any precedent, abortion, affirmative action. You watch. The first, they're coming after the First Amendment next. But uh, Biden has pledged the first appointment's going to be a black woman, the most frequently cited, uh, who I don't, I don't know either one of them, or a woman uh, named uh, Liana uh, Kruger, California um, judge out there in U.S. Court of Appeals, Judge uh, Landria Brown-Jackson. Uh, both, I'm told, are quite uh, distinguished jurists. Uh, I'm sure Republicans will oppose them. But um, I know you want Kamala Harris. I want Cheryl and Eiffel. It's not going to happen. But uh, Steve Breyer, uh, you know, really served his country very well on that high court. You know, uh, yeah, I give Paul Begallo's credit for the Kamala Harris ideas. Put Kamala Harris on the Supreme Court. She was Attorney General of California, so she's obviously qualified. And make Mitch Landry vice president. That's not going to happen. One of the things that's happened is, by default, it just became in this country that Supreme Court justices have to be judges before they go to the Supreme Court. And that's just, you can have some, but I, I would much rather have a, you know, like an Earl Warren, who was actually a politician that actually had to run for something. And I, 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 I just think we, the court said, you know, there was no requirement in the Constitution or anything like that. I, I think we have just lapsed into a, a position that I I just don't agree with, but it, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because it, it just now I can't remember the last time you had a Supreme Court justice that wasn't a appellate court or, or district court or something like that. And I, I think it's Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, that was the last one. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, anybody who wants to really see that dramatically, go look at our friend George Stevens' uh, uh, two-part series he did 30 years ago in Thurgood Marshall and Brand v. Board of Education. Right. Earl Warren was the politician, Supreme Court justice, who chief justice, who delivered a nine-nothing vote. Now, James, if that had been a 6-3 or 5-4 vote, oh. it would have been greeted a lot differently. And um, we do need that. I don't think it's going to happen this time. I hope it happens sometime soon. Let me tell one <clears throat> quick story about how things have changed. Stephen Breyer was elevated to the Supreme Court from a position on the U.S. Court of Appeals in Boston. How did he get on the U.S. Court of Appeals? 1980, he was nominated and... <clears throat> it, uh, 
Congress finished and it wasn't taken up. Republicans, in a great shock, won control of the Senate. They won the White House. And there was the Breyer nomination hanging out there. Lame duck session. <clears throat> it would have been the Republican, Reagan, and Strom Thurmond, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, their choice. Ted Kennedy went to Thurmond and said, hey, I really, this one really matters to me. And Thurmond allowed Stephen Breyer to be confirmed in a lame duck session. Can you imagine that happening today? No, no way. No way. Anyway, um, James, uh, moving on, this is a Carvillian topic, the problems the ultra-left is causing Democrats. Uh, one of our other previous guests, a guy we admire a lot, Rudy Chera, has written a devastating critique of how Democrats, are st who the left is stressing turnout, uh, non-white voters, cultural issues, and everything, and that it just demonstrably doesn't work. He, he, he has a great newsletter. He did an interview with Charlie Sykes and the Bulwark. And uh, it's a case that's irrefutable. Of course it's irrefutable. And the entire theory of the left is not wrong, it's laughable. And their theory, as I understand it, is that BIPOC people, which I think is black indigenous people of color, right? It, it, all non-Caucasian people will join forces with a part of a, of a, a white educated super liberal group and will win elections like that. Well, that's, that's insane. That's just insane. And first of all, it assumes that anybody, that, that people are, are united in their non-whiteness, which is a stupid assumption. And Brewer, he does a great job. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, the, 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 I, I don't even, I, I, it, it, when, in some is that crazy. It's like these people that, that, it's almost like nutty as these anti-science people. I mean, the entire premise of that whole argument is just fundamentally wrong. Fundamentally wrong. And you, you can't, and Brewer points out in his piece, that you, you can't, lose these white working class voters to the extent that Democrats are losing them and, and win elections. It, it, it's, it's just, there's nothing to argue about here, people. No, there really is not. I, I called him Rudy. I meant to say Rudy, because yeah. we know his name is R-U-Y, and boy, he is good. No, and one thing I disagree with him on, he thinks the Democrats made a mistake in um, trying to do something about this voter suppression. I think that's a much bigger deal than he does, but I agree with him on everything else. And I think Democrats also, they, they, they give Republicans a pass on too much. When defund the police becomes part of what seems to be the, the Democratic agenda, when in fact it's only a teeny percent of Democrats. You know, don't give away the crime issue Terrible. to Republicans. And I, I think, you know, our friend Terry McAuliffe made a big rhetorical mistake in Virginia on parents and schools. And now you have Glenn Youngkin, the governor, coming in, and he's going to have a secretive little tip room to have people dish dirt uh, on teachers and maybe even book uh, Bernie. That's an issue. Education no. should not be an issue where Republicans won on. And I think on your point about the white working class, most of these things they're proposing, the child tax credit, uh, universal pre-K, expanding health care, all that helps white working people every bit as much as it helps black working people. It is not a color issue. And Democrats don't stress that enough. Of course they don't. And, and you talk about educational authoritarianism. Look at Ginyakin is doing. Look in Florida 
where where DeSantis is professor from the University of Florida. It, I, I, they're big rivals ours. I, I, I pull against them, but they're a, a really first class state university. He said they can't testify. Some judge yeah, overruled including, it, but, including our guest Michael McDonald. Yeah, right. I, I mean, it's it, it it's 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 unbelievable how a small sliver of Democrats defines our entire party. All right, where. Their party doesn't get defined by the governor of Virginia or the governor of Florida. It, 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 you, you make a very good point. I mean, it's just crazy. That, that you talk about the Ill, illiberal left, the illiberal left. What about the, the illiberal right? And, and one other thing is Tucker Carlson was on the air. I never think it's never ceases to stun me. He said, why are we for Ukraine? What's wrong with Russia? It's just a lie yeah. on the map. I... I, I, I it just we grew up in a country where people disagreed. We had fundamental issues, but people sort of agreed on the United States. We don't even pull for our own country anymore. This no. is weird. I want somebody to do a poll and say, assume for the moment that Vladimir Putin could run for president of the United States. In 2024, the candidates were Joe Biden, a Democrat, and Vladimir Putin, a Republican. I would love to see how many votes Putin would get. I yeah. bet you he'd come out the chair when you saw it. Yeah, he'd get Tucker Carlson's and uh, oh, probably yeah. more of his followers than we'd like to believe. But Tucker there, you know, I don't think there's any right-wing authoritarian repressive dictator that Tucker doesn't like. But James, you know, let me, let, me, let me stick on this thing just for a minute. Again, we talked about these. You know, let me give you another example. Medicaid expansion. There are 12 states all run by conservatives that didn't uh, enlist in Medicaid expansions. In every one of those states, hospitals mainly in rural areas have closed. That is killing an awful lot of rural white Trump voters uh, as well as other people. And Democrats have to stress those kind of issues. You've talked about this. These are districts and areas where Trump got 77% of the vote. If you can cut it to 73 or 74 and you do it in enough places, that makes a big difference. But you can't do it by talking about that left-wing agenda. You can do it by talking about things like Medicaid expansion. So mark this down. Save it. Listeners, write this down. James Carville says two years from now, Mississippi will have a Democratic governor. Okay. So there was a big piece, and it was excellent, in the New York Times about, I think it's called Seen River Hospital Group, then Pascagoula, Mississippi, which is maybe 45 miles from where I'm sitting right now in South Mississippi. They are overwhelmed. They're losing money hand over foot. In, in, in these rural hospitals that don't have it's another $600 million they would have in there. They're losing hospitals everywhere. And Brandon understands this, and he talks about it. And by the way, yes, he is part of that family, and yes, he is the P- Public Service Commission for North Mississippi. He's the highest elected state. Say Democrat. his name again, James. Brandon, maybe you never heard the last name, Presley. And he's from, <laughs> he happens to be from Tupelo, Mississippi. And I think we all Somebody know what other from Tupelo, from right, Tupelo. Right, right, right. But I mean, he's totally understand, gets it, is the farthest thing in the world from, from being woke. And he's raising money, and I'm helping him raise money. And, of course, he's 100% for Medicaid expansion. Poor people in Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, I mean, they need this. And not just putting it in white, but rural whites need this. this yes, is insane. yes. It is not a color no. issue by any means, no. of course. Um, but, uh, okay, right here, you have heard it. Brandon Presley well, is going to be the next governor I'm, of Mississippi. I'm, I'm telling you, mark it down. 
listeners, mark it down, you know, and when people stop laughing, then follow this All right. race. All right, James, you're on a roll. So before we go, uh, let's just spend two minutes. Last weekend was the best pro football oh, weekend man. of my life. Four fabulous games. That Chiefs-Bills game was one for the ages. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there has ever been a better game. And I, I don't know either. That that, that was something. I, I have described, of course, you know, and there's know how much I love Joe Barr and, and Jamar Chase. My great fear is that Cincinnati wins and the Rams win because Aaron Donald and Von Miller, I'm afraid, I, I, I'm afraid for Joe. He got sacked nine times and threw for over 300 yards. But then nobody could – Aaron Donald might be the best defensive lineman in the history of the NFL. And, and we know what Von Miller can do, and we know Cincinnati can't block him. I, I mean, I really – yeah. well, I, kind of, I, mean, I don't want him to win that much. <laughs> I think a more likely test, we may disagree on this, is, is that, that Von Miller and Aaron Donald are going to go up against Patrick Mahomes, and he may be a match for them. Uh, he he is the cl- cleverest, quickest, swiftest quarterback uh, I have ever seen. And he's got uh, a much better uh, offensive line. And I, 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 I don't yeah. think Joe, but, but it's not an argument. I, 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 look, Mahomes is great. Yeah. I, I just say, until, you know, I, I, my great fear for Joe Barr, he's, he, he's going to get, really, he got hurt last year. And, I mean, the guy has no time at all. Well, they just, but boy, they were for, every game was great. I mean, forever my reservations about the NFL sometimes. Last weekend I was just mesmerized, uh, and uh, I got to have, I have one one complaint, change that damn overtime rule. Games like that should not be decided by a coin flip. Uh, They could figure out how to do it, but change it. Even Andy Reid, the Kansas City coach, said that. It used to be a field goal, if you remember. Yeah, Yeah. that was worse. Yeah, that was worse. Jeez, you you know, two first downs and you win the game. I mean, that's how we got to the Super Bowl against Minnesota. We'll come back next week with our Super Bowl predictions. We're going to wait, uh, though. Okay. Hey, James, with over 100,000 Russian troops poised for a possible invasion of Ukraine, a global crisis, we couldn't have a better guest. Politics war room favorite, the White House and national security correspondent for the New York Times, the great David Sanger. David, thank you so much. Let me just start off by asking you, calculate the probabilities of Putin sending in ground forces. Oh, I think well over 50%. That doesn't mean he'll invade the entire country. He may send them in to expand the areas in the east, the Russian-speaking areas that uh, uh, around Crimea, which, of course, he grabbed in 2014. Uh, he might ta- try to take the entire eastern part of the country uh, sort of up to the Dnieper River, uh, which would basically divide Ukraine in half. I don't think he wants to grab the entire thing and stay because that would subject him to the kind of insurgency he saw in Afghanistan. They've been there, done that. Um, but I think he'll try to take something. Well, if he does, let's talk about whether there can be a united NATO response, more buildup of forces, sending more weapons to Kiev, sanctions that really bite, including cutting off, uh, cutting the Russians off from financial transactions, SWIFT. Um, well, are the Germans going to buy into this? I think the Germans are going to be the most reluctant. Um, Let me 
give you the sort of the laydown of where we think the allies are in this. So first of all, the most important distinction here is that while NATO helps Ukraine, helps arm Ukraine, helps train Ukraine, Ukraine is not a NATO nation. And part of what Putin is trying to do here is assure that it never becomes one. So he's got a set of of Ukraine-related demands, which are Ukraine never joins NATO and NATO gets out of Ukraine, doesn't supply it with weapons, trainers, so forth. And then he's got a set of broader com- uh, uh, complaints, uh, which have to do with the expansion of NATO since 1997. And basically, he wants to turn the clock back. And as Fiona Hill put it so wonderfully, evict the United States from Europe. In other words, get all of its nuclear weapons out and make sure we don't have any uh, troops or training going on in former Warsaw Pact nations, former Soviet republics. So your question is, how united are the NATO allies on this? And uh, the answer is, they've been surprisingly united, but each one of the major countries that uh, are the biggest voices in NATO is going through a particular transition right now. So in Britain, Boris Johnson is holding on to the prime ministership by a thread and a bad party or two. Um, in Germany, uh, we have a new chancellor. Uh, and so there is not the kind of understandable, reliable hand that we got um, uh, so much uh, from from Chancellor Merkel uh, over the past decade and a half. Uh, France is entering a presidential election. So um, if Vladimir Putin was going to pick a moment where he had the most chance of dividing Europe, he's picked it pretty well. And the administration recognizing that and recognizing the mistakes it made in Afghanistan has been consulting, drafting documents together with NATO, putting sanctions packages together with NATO. And so it's a real test of wills between the American ability to hold hold NATO and the rest of Europe together and Putin's ability to divide them. David, you wrote about some of those possible, I guess you call them off-ramps for negotiations. Ukraine, I mean, Ukraine not going into NATO, however they word it, might be the easiest because Ukraine's not going to go into NATO. Not uh, anytime soon, in, yeah. In the foreseeable future. But but getting NATO, getting, uh, you know, American presence uh, and weapons uh, out, of, out of Europe, out of NATO, that's got to be a non-starter from a policy vantage point, And it would be political suicide for Joe Biden, who has to look tough after Afghanistan. That's absolutely right. Um, and it would also violate a fundamental principle. And we just heard um, Secretary Blinken, Tony Blinken, make this point again. He wouldn't say exactly what they put in this document that they sent back to uh, the Russians uh, on Tuesday. Um, But uh, what he did say was that um, the United States is not surrendering and NATO is not surrendering. It's open door policy, which basically says you have the right to choose who your allies are and you can apply for membership in NATO. Ukraine would love to be in NATO. NATO would not love to have Ukraine in right now. It's not a mature democracy. It's corrupt. It's got a lot of work to do. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they would ever agree with the Russians 
to cut off that possibility for Ukraine or any other former Soviet state or former member of the Warsaw Pact um, forever, because forever is a long time. So you're right. Some of these are non-starters. Getting all of our nuclear weapons out of Europe, well, sounds nice because the Russians can say everybody brings nuclear weapons back to their own borders. But uh, Russia is part of Europe, and its nuclear weapons can easily reach European capitals and even its intermediate ones in a matter of minutes. So the U.S. is saying, no, we're not going to surrender a position of having all of our nuclear weapons out, although they haven't been moved in some time. Yeah, James. So, David, actually, about 15 years ago, I, I worked in the Ukraine. Uh, I worked for the Orange, and the, the polling, was, was, it was stark. The Eastern, it used to call it the Party of Regions, which was the kind of pro-Russian party. And it, it was really a, a stark difference between the East and the Western parts of Ukraine. Some of the stuff I've read is some of the people in the East identify a little more as Ukrainians than before. How, how much of how, how much pro-Russian sentiment is there in the East right now, and how much anti-Russian sentiment is in the West? Because I think it's a it's a distinction worth talking about a little bit. Well, James, I'm glad to hear this because I didn't know this history with you before. And my view is if Ukraine can, like, you know, survive having Carville working in the country, <laughs> how bad can an can invasion be? be, right? Now, <laughs> um, now this, is, this is no laughing matter, I guess. It's, we're, this truly is war and peace. But jokes aside, um, uh, what the polling shows is that the country didn't really have a great desire to join the Western alliance prior to Putin grabbing Crimea. But those numbers have now just about doubled. In most, in most of the polling, you see about 60% of Ukrainians are sort of more interested in joining the West. But as you suggest, this is split very much between the Western side of the country and the Eastern Russian-speaking part of the country. Um, I do think it is fair to say that most of what Putin has done in recent times has served to drive the uh, Ukrainians more toward the West. So he's almost been self-defeating in that regard. And it's also forced a series of governments to seek more arms to defend themselves and to build up their military capability. Last time I was in Ukraine, I remember running into the commander of the American training group that was uh, there. So um, I think if Putin did invade, he would probably drive even more people to that view because there's a fair bit of nationalism that has developed in Ukraine about being an independent state, uh, which it has been. Um, we all forget, because it wasn't a big deal in our history, but it was a big deal in theirs, that at the end of the Cold War, Ukraine agreed to give up all of the nuclear weapons on its territory, Soviet nuclear weapons that were there, in return for an assurance from the West that Ukraine's borders and sovereignty would be respected. Now, that did not say that we would come to their to you know send in troops on their behalf, Um but they're going to, if, if in fact they do get taken over uh, or further taken over, uh, I think they're going to believe that the West left them 
uh, a little bit high and dry when they swapped their nuclear weapons for what they thought was a security guarantee. So all the reports that I hear, particularly like a place like Kiev, is people just going on about their lives and they just that that it appears that we're more worried about Kiev here than Kiev is worried about Kiev there. Is is that a fair? Inference to draw from this? Yeah, I have not been there uh, while this is going on, but in talking to my uh, New York Times colleagues who are there, that is exactly right. And the government has been trying to sort of promote that because their biggest fear is that if there's flight from the city, the economy will collapse, the stock market will tank. So on the one hand, they're saying to the Americans, we need help, we need arms. And on the other hand, they're saying to their own people, don't panic, we've always been under the threat of Russian invasion. What has, as President Zelensky said the other day, what's new? Well, what's new is 100,000 troops across three different borders, Russian troops. So the one of the things that was almost everybody... But I was working for the pro-Western party, obviously. But what's an article of faith is Putin hates the idea that the Western part of Ukraine looks toward Poland or Czech Republic or even Germany as kind of models of prosperity and that Moscow and Putin has always hated that he doesn't want prosperity on his border where people are going back and forth and saying, hey, they got a better deal than we got here. And that drives a lot of his behavior. Do you Do you agree with that? Sort of general observation. Yeah, I think that does drive some of his behavior. But, you know, if you go back to this document, the speech that he gave, very long speech in July, he basically said, I don't recognize Ukraine as a separate state. I've never recognized Ukraine as a separate state. It has always been culturally, historically part of uh, Russia and then the Soviet Union. And So he starts from a very different place than we start. We're looking at the map and saying, here's the border. Don't you cross it? And he's looking at the map saying that never should have left Russia in the first place. It only did because uh, Boris Yeltsin struck a bad deal with Bill Clinton and allowed it to drift off to the West. And it's going to be my legacy, you know, Putin's view seems to be that I'm going to begin to undo what Yeltsin did and begin to restore some of those republics. And when you think about it, he now has an ally in Belarus to the north of of Ukraine. He just went in and bailed out the government of Kazakhstan. They owe him one. So he can imagine putting an arc together of former Soviet states, not the whole Soviet Union, but the beginning of the rebuilding and the the undoing of what he's described as the greatest tragedy in the 20th century. Before I turn it over to Al, how how do the Baltic states look at this? I mean, they got to be nervous. They are real nervous. And that's why when President Biden authorized those 8,500 troops to go on high alert the other day, he said they would go to the Baltics which are, of course, or several of them are, uh, members of NATO. And that's the assurance that when the Russians march out, just to make sure they don't turn right uh, instead of heading into Ukraine. Um, So 
one of the things that Biden has said is that if you take over Ukraine, the United States and NATO will reinforce along the NATO eastern flank, which basically is saying to Putin, not only will we not get out of Europe, we're actually going to add forces to Europe. And that's what worries me about this whole thing. It's not simply the fate of Ukraine, although that is critical. But if they take Ukraine, if we then reinforce on the border, if they then move nuclear missile, nuclear weapons, particularly intermediate range, into their new territory in Ukraine, we're back to some of the worst behavior of the Cold War. And, you know, we all thought that was, you know, long gone. Probably, you know, Al Hunt's probably the only one on this entire conversation who even remembers the Cold War, right, James? <laughs> I hate to tell you. How about, I'm not as old as but I'm close. <laughs> hey, David, how about the Cuban Missile Crisis? You weren't even born back I then. I was uh, born by then, but I was very small. You were one small. years old, yeah. I think, right. I, let, me, let me go back to uh, that, that great Fiona Hill piece uh, in your paper. You earlier mentioned that Putin was figuring this is the perfect time in Europe with uh, a lack of stability. She, she also says, she calls Putin, I think it's a great term, a master of coercive inducement, that she thinks he also calculates he has us, America, right where he wants us. Uh, weak, uh, polarized, uh, that this is the perfect time to be, that America is his prime target here. Uh, America is certainly the one that he wants to go deal with. And uh, he wants to go deal with them because it's the United States that's the provider of the nuclear weapons that are out there, right? It's the United States that's going to be sort of the key to um, to all of that. So um, he doesn't really want to deal with Europe, and we want to make sure that we keep the Europeans all in the loop. Yeah. Um, I, 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 You also, one of your... Terrific pieces this week uh, made a quick reference to China. Now, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping are trying to make nice and uh, uh, you know, share, share a, a wariness about uh, America. Uh, Xi Jinping is making a big deal out of those Olympics. Is, is this a factor? Would Putin conceivably, to, in order to placate Beijing, postpone anything until after February 20th? Um, he may well. What's interesting is the Chinese have been really quiet. They haven't said one thing on this this and they're in a hard spot for three reasons. First, they don't want distractions from the Olympics. Although I do note that uh, Russia invaded Georgia uh, during the Beijing uh, Summer Olympics, as you may recall, what now? Yep. 12, 13 years ago. Um, uh, second thing to remember out of this is. If, in fact, the sanctions are put in place, China's the one country that might bail Russia out. So he wants to be pretty careful with them. And third, the one who dis who, um, who really will uh, settle all the timing of an invasion, if an invasion comes, is the weatherman. Because the ground's got to be frozen. And, you know, the not many good things from come from climate change. But one good thing that's come from climate change is the ground is taking a long time to freeze out there, and the Russians don't want to get all of their heavy equipment bogged down in the mud. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, um, we mentioned earlier I was around for the Cuban Missile 
crisis. You were you were uh, still uh, in the crib, but um, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in, in 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 Putin's mind for a second, and he raised the possibility of putting. Russian weapons in Venezuela or Cuba. I suspect that's just a bluff. But if you look back, Kennedy deserves great credit for his handling of the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis. They got the missiles out of uh, out of Cuba. But Khrushchev got something too. We removed missiles from he Turkey. He sure did. He sure did. And is is that? Would you guess that might be something that Putin thinks about? Uh, he must. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis is taught in American. Uh, national strategy classes. I teach it. Uh, my colleague Graham Allison at Harvard wrote the single best book about it, Essence of Decision, worth your listeners going back to go for still in print, you know, years and years later. And what did we learn from that? First of all, there was a secret deal that Kennedy used to take um, missiles out of Turkey. Um, we have a lot of nuclear weapons in Europe that we don't really want in Europe. They're old gravity bombs, and they're hard to defend. Um, some of them are even in Turkey. Uh, so I could imagine a situation where we would negotiate those away in return for a negotiation that pulled back the Russian intermediate uh, or tactical weapons. Uh, and Secretary Blinken said today that restoring the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which uh, President um, Trump pulled out of with some good reason um, uh, several years ago, uh, was one of the proposals that he's um, looking at. David, you have a final question before I turn back to James. Um, remember John McCain used to talk about Russia as a gas station uh, masquerading as a country. Uh, they have nuclear weapons, and that makes a big difference, I know. But I think much less than China, th th this, is not, this is not an awesome economic power. Uh, there's probably more dissent inside than, uh, than uh, Putin wants us to realize. He's jailing everybody in sight. Uh, just as, as a long-run proposition, uh, I wouldn't want to bet on Russia. That's right. They are a declining power. And, you know, you could argue that part of what's going on here is that they were feeling like they were being treated like a declining power. That every time you turned on the TV, you heard Joe Biden talking about China, China as the rising military threat to the United States, China as a rising technological competitor, China as the main trade competitor, China as... Um, uh, an expanding uh, influence in Latin America, in Africa. And so it's very conceivable that part of what Putin is doing here is throwing what Rose Gottelmeier, the, the uh, uh, negotiator of the last big nuclear treaty uh, in, uh, with Russia, calls a temper tantrum. And that may well be exactly what's going on. Yeah, and uh, Graham Allison also wrote the the great book recently on the U.S. and China. That's right. But uh, uh, we're, we're, we're out. We're, we've we got to call Graham when this uh, show is over and tell him that if he sells books because of your guys' um, uh, uh, podcast, you know, we we get our cut. He's so bashful, though, yeah, uh, yeah, David. I'm not right. sure. Yeah. Uh, James, so, go ahead. Uh, uh, David, explain to me and, and our listeners, exactly what the deal is between the Germans and the natural gas and the heating. And it seems to be, I know a little bit about it, but enlighten me some more, that a lot of Germans are saying, that's easy for you to say. You got your own energy and you're, you know, 5,000 miles away. But 
this could, you know, really hurt some of our larger factories and, you know, heating oil or whatever else. But you just go into that just a little bit of the German concerns about this. So um, the Germans made a big mistake a few years ago. Um, They began to diminish uh, their use of nuclear power, particularly after the accident a decade ago in Japan. And the result was that they became more and more dependent on Russia. And then along comes the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline, which would take gas directly from Russia to Germany and go around Ukraine, very deliberate effort by the part of uh, the uh, Russians to cut Ukraine out of not only the pathway, but the revenue that comes from using that pathway. And uh, so that all becomes uh, a piece of this as well. And... um, so uh, the um, the Germans are quite concerned that if they go along with the sanctions, the first thing the Russians do is make it a very cold winter. And that's why yesterday you saw the administration announce that they were uh, trying to go find alternative sources of supply, uh, liquefied natural gas that you could put on freighters, things like that, uh, other pipelines – diverting shipments that were supposed to go to the United States or to Asia, sending LNG from the United States, anything to say to the European nations, stick with us, we will make sure your people are heated. The question is, can they make that work? Well, I tell you, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really com- complicated problem. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you think that President Biden is doing so far in this. Do you have any major critiques of uh, to, to this date? What the way we handled this? So far, it's looking pretty good. You okay. know, um, uh, it could be uh, you know it could be a lot worse. Right. And, but the guy said it's jumped out of forty story buildings. He passed the twenty stories. So far, so good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know? No, I mean they've worked. They they the mistake they made in Afghanistan, which was taking their their uh, allies by surprise, they haven't made here. They made sure that every step along the way, the allies were consulted and consulted again and consulted a third time. Uh, You know, they're feeling the way we all feel about Zoom meetings. Like, really? Again? Um, So um, I think they've done a good job uh, of that. Uh, But the question is, at the end of the day, is it going to save Ukraine? Uh, Because we all know, and Vladimir Putin knows, we're not sending troops and NATO isn't sending troops. So he has sort of what what in in the strategic world is called escalation dominance, right? He has a way of stepping this up each time. And we have some ways too, but they are mostly soft power and economic power. And he's got hard power and, of course, the cyber power of the ability to once again turn off the power, the electric grid in parts of Ukraine, which he did in 2015 and 2016. Well, thank you for making that point about nuclear power. I, I, I've, I've never gotten this whole anti-nuclear power movement at all from from an environmental standpoint, from, from everything else. And, you know, German engineering is, per, you know, just like France has a lot of nuclear power and they can do it safely. You know, I, I mean, it... it you're right, but that's a very important point. They've they left them, they've led with their chin. Albert? 
Well, David, uh, you know, you mentioned cyber, and of course we have the ability to retaliate, too, to the Russians, uh, to the Russian grid, uh, if they do that. And no one knows cyber more than David Sanger. No one knows any of this stuff more than David uh, Sanger. I think you may even know more than Graham Allison, David. Uh, I, 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 wouldn't go, I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that I think our cyber retaliation here is somewhat limited because... Mm-hmm. We know that the Russians are through our grid and our our systems. They proved that with the solar winds attack last year, the ransomware attacks, and so forth. And so we're going to be cautious about going into a direct cyber conflict. You know, we've just got a lot more attack surface for them to attack us than we have for them. Well, it's going to be a uh, fascinating uh, and, uh, I guess, volatile, uh, we would say, next two or three weeks. David Sanger, you, as always, are one of our great guests. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough. You, no one knows more about this subject than you. And uh, so go back to informing us but, in the New York Times. And, and, David, thank you so much. You're a great friend of the shows. And I, I know twice as much now as I did when I started. And I, I think our listeners are going to feel well, the same way. Anytime. I, I actually love talking to you guys for all the trouble I like to give you both. <laughs> we love you giving us trouble. <laughs> Car- uh, still, you're right. Carville in Ukraine, man. Just think about it for a while. Hey, James, a lot of people uh, didn't even make resolutions this year. And you know what? I get it. But that doesn't mean you can't shake things up. And whether it's by switching up your workout routine, going someplace new, or taking on another challenge this year, the best way to do it is with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ear. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you because no matter how much you shake things up, literally, no matter how much you shake around, you know they won't fall out of your ears and their everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. They even have an awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings so you can take Raycons with you wherever you go. And with optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they will not budge. Trust us, they're perfect for staying in during your runs, right, James? Yeah, it, it, I, I can't stand those, like, teardrop earbuds that just keep falling out of your ear. You know, a lot of times I'm, you know, watching something and, uh, you know, i got two things going. And this, the, fit is everything. And, and these people are the king of fit, you know. And plus, they, they can do anything anybody else can do it twice as good. So it, yeah. it's a, it, it, it really annoys me. Well, Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And they're priced just right. You get quality, audio for half, and the price of other premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycons everyday earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. 48,000. Right now, Politics War Room listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash warroom. That's buyraycon.com slash warroom to save 15% off Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, as always, there are so many good questions. It really is painful uh, to cull them down to uh, six or seven, but here we go. Brian in North Hempstead, New York, 
says, here in November, Democrats suffered local losses they hadn't seen in a generation. Talking up their good policies didn't overcome COVID and Trump exhaustion, allowing Republican retreads and newcomers alike to win narrowly. So how would you go about motivating suburban independents and Democrats to put aside exhaustion and complacency and vote? Wow. You know, at some point, knowing everything that that suburban or, 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 or traditional Democrats know, if this doesn't motivate you, I don't know if I, I don't know what I can add to it. If if four years of rampant criminality doesn't motivate you, if you're not motivated by what's getting ready to happen with the Supreme Court, and and it's not just Roe, it, 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 affirmative action is down the tubes. Environmental regulation, forget about it. I mean, they're getting ready to tap dance on your head, and it, it, you know, at some point. Uh, you know, Biden could do better. We could have better communications. I've got a, a, a interview coming up in Vox. We don't concentrate on local races enough. But at some point, we just have to hope and rely that people see and become aware of what's going on around them. Because if, if you're, you know, if you if you're a Democrat, I mean, we have a forty percent drop in the poverty rate. You know, hourly workers have power that they, they've never had before, and they will lose all of that and more if if they let the Republicans come back in power. And and at some point, I I, I hate to say this, but at some point, you know, it's an old expression: "God only helps those who help themselves." We got to start helping ourselves here, and you know, we, we can certainly do a better job of telling people what's at stake, you know, not just what they have to gain, but what they have to lose. And, but we, we just, we people got to step up and game up. If you can't Agreed. see this, there's something wrong with you. I, I, I agree. Next, John in Chicago says, what are your thoughts on the latest Supreme Court decision that President Trump cannot use executive privilege to keep evidence from the 1-6 commission. The only justice to, to vote against this was Clarence Thomas, whose wife uh, allegedly endorsed the 1-6 rioters. What gives? This was an easy decision. It was a terrible... Trump had no argument. Uh, and the fact that one justice voted against it is the only stunning thing. And I would just tell all of our readers out there, if you get a chance, read Jane Mayer's piece in the current New Yorker on Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, and just see what you think about potential conflicts of interest. I, I, I agree with every word you said, and particularly about Jane's piece. And, you know, I don't understand why senators, Supreme Court justices, federal officials, why, they, why, why do they have to trade in stock? And why, why, why can't we have people that are appointed that have, you know, and I, I, look, I, I, hard for me to disagree with somebody's spouse saying something. But, I mean, this is, this is so ridiculous, it, it's unbelievable. And, you know, of course, if you look at the numbers, people have declined in faith in, in, in the federal judiciary, and it's no wonder. And, you know, the same thing applies to the Federal Reserve. I mean, every time these guys are, like, trading stock, I mean, if, you, if you're on the Federal Reserve Board, it looks like you could give up something for that. Yeah, I think they're cracking down on that, as they ought to, but Congress ought to, too. Yeah. In a, in a, in a rare misstep, Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi first defended it, but I think she's changing her positions now. There's no, you know, you can, you can, you know, be 
you know, invested in some kind of a mutual fund or something. It's not, you're not, no one's going to the poorhouse, but you shouldn't be trading on inside information, as I think a number of lawmakers at least have been suspected of doing. Right. Um, James, our next, uh, our next question here is, it's good. this is one I want you to take up. John, in Junction City, California, how is current polling conducted? It used to be phone call, the personal landline. This has changed electronic communications. What's best now? I think most of them go to voter list, and 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 obviously, you know, it used to be if you had to have thirty percent sell in your sample. I mean, now I'm thirty samples, seventy five, eighty percent sell, because it's just it's it's a really different characteristic between people. I don't even have a landline. I don't I don't have a phone number other than my cell phone number, and I'm an old guy, so you can imagine that. Young people do, but it used to be random digit dialing. I think they've gone more to voter files, and it's heavily, heavily sell. And, uh, you know, still uh, some people are more likely to answer the phone than other people. And, you know, polling has always had had its problems, its issues. But I think most of the people um, don't follow the industry, obviously, like I used to. But, but. You know, they're trying to you know, no one wants to be wrong. I'll <laughs> put it that way. That's not no. that's not good for no. business. But Well they they do and you know, having been in you know, having can uh, working for news organizations that conducted polls, uh, you're absolutely right about the changes. They they have a problem, they have a huge rejection rate, much, much larger than they ever had before, which makes it harder. There's also more and more polls that try to do it than the internet. Um, uh, they aren't there yet, uh, but probably at some point, just as we went from door to door to phone, phone uh, uh, to to mobile phone. James, it was 16 years ago. I took my kid to college, and I said, "Well, let's get you a phone." And he said, what, "What do you What do you mean a phone?" I said, "Well, you got to have a phone in your room." He <laughs> said, "I have a phone in my pocket." Right. right. So, I, I, uh, I literally yeah. don't have a phone number. Right. You know, obviously an older demographic, but I, right. I think one day they're going to figure out how to get 10,000 people, you know, a really representative sample and, you know, pay them and, and do all. I, I guarantee you they're trying to figure something like that out. They are. They are. They're trying to. And it's Jackie and. Jackie in Boston Lake, New York, says in major newspapers, we consistently read two seemingly contradictory articles. The latest on Trump's crimes and political journalists and columnists repeatedly talking about Trump's 2024 run with zero reference to his crimes. Are the political journalists just ridiculously siloed or are they simply assuming that Trump will never be held responsible? Jackie, it's even larger than that. Because you read pieces about the democratic schisms and problems. Those are real, you know, I can, you know, evade those. They couldn't get a, a voting rights bill through the Senate. But then you read about Republicans and you hardly ever read anything about the denial of many of them, the January 6th uh, commission, uh, or wanting to look into that, or those who embrace an absolutely certifiable lie. And I don't think it's biased. I just think it's the, you know, there's more of the Democrats are in power. But I think Republicans in general are getting away with uh, murder. And every story on Trump running, the second and third paragraph ought to be all the criminal and legal issues he faces. Well, first of all, this is a first. Uh, back-to-back uh, 
writers are from places that I've never, I've never heard of Junction City, California or Boston Lake, New York. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I pride myself on, you know, having a pretty good knowledge of geography and different places around the, the United States of the world. But congratulations. I'm, as soon as I get off here, trust me, I'm going to Google both of them. <laughs> and, uh, but, but the, the question is right. And, and of course, one of the things, my observations being on the outside, you being on the inside, is political journalism tends to have one kind of problem is everybody talks to the same people. And while that can be valuable, it, it, it can also give you some t- tunnel vision. And it, it also, it, 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 it just, it, it's still the, the old way that that journalist grew up, you know, that you, you, that you you're just trained. It was just part of the DNA, you know, that you had. But on the other hand, you know, if a truck runs over a child, you got to interview the truck. I don't know what the analogy is, but it was something like that. And, and I, I think that's a ongoing issue that better editors and better news organizations are probably aware of and trying to combat. But I, I, don't, I don't know that. And uh, also, I think these investigations, we'll talk about this for 45 seconds. There's just this entire sense with Trump is, you know, and, and the Mueller thing, and pe- people are, oh, they got him, Robert Mueller, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then it, it just, Although it was very damaging, it, 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 it actually was turned out to be politically a nothing burger, if anything, maybe slightly helpful to rally in the Republican base. And there's just sense that he is just, he's been a criminal all his life. He's always gotten away with it, and he'll just continue getting away with it. I would bet that they get him this year. And I'm, now, I mean, get him because if they indict him, it's going to be a unbelievably strong case. And I don't can't tell you the, the merits of in and out of the the Manhattan DA or the Westchester DA or the Fulton County DA or the the investigation into January the sixth. You know, but. I, I'm, I'm, some, something's going to come out of this. It just, yeah. it just has to. And the other thing is, right. Trump just has shitty lawyers, and he always has. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I understand how people feel like it, he just gets away with everything, and it's kind of hopeless. But that, 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 I'm, I'm, I think this might produce a little different result. James, you, you didn't know where those two other um, locations were. Um, I'm going to solve your problem now. This is from Andrew from a town called New Orleans, Louisiana. Ah. <laughs> uh, and he said that you, you noted recently Demo- Democrats think it's beneath them to sell. You're right. But doesn't that call for a huge shift in the way Democrats approach politics? Don't we need brash populist and anti-establishment fighters rather than beltway elitist? Well, the, all right. Uh, 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 yes, of course. And, and, and by the way, I'm sure that you feel the same way. That the situation in New Orleans, particularly with reference to crime, is just awful. And you know the the, the DA and the city council and, and the police chief and people are looking for solutions and looking for solutions quickly. And that's everywhere. We, we, one of the things is, you know, I'm, I'm very big and I'm, I'm not 
I'm not very happy about what's happening in our city right now. But what, what, to a large extent, the, the Democrats are becoming increasingly captive of, of uh, edu- you know, educated. We've we just become a very educated party to the sense that we, we, I think we're losing contact with, you know, non-coastal educated people. And, I, I, and you know, people talk about the Democratic establishment. Uh, I, I often refer to as a member of the Democratic establishment. I have no idea if I am or, or how, how, how does one become that. Or, Do you or have your card? I don't have. I've, I've not been certified. But it, 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 there's an establishment in everything. I mean, there's some French guy that said that, that, that there's five people that run any organization. There's five people that run the Vatican. There's five people that, you know, run General Motors. There's five people that run, you know, Angola State Prison. And But I, in terms of was Harry Reid an establishment Democrat? I, I guess, but there's nothing establishment about Senator Reid at all. I, so... I, 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 it's just one of these little, I, I know what people are getting at. It's, it, it's one of these words that gets banded around, and I'm not exactly sure what it means. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you put that uh, very well. Morgan in Tupelo, Mississippi. Oh, Boy, I tell you, we're, Presley. we are right around your, your, your neck of the woods, James. He said, it seems like it's harder these days than ever before to find reliable news and not just noise. Where do you recommend finding reliable, honest news, and what are your favorite sources to read and watch? Number one in my list, this may come as a shock, may come as a shock to everybody out there, is the PBS NewsHour, anchored, <laughs> an, anchored by some woman, I think her name is Judy Woodruff, who I happen to be married to. I also happen to think it is, is uh, the best show on television. When it comes to reading, uh, Morgan, you know, I, I read the Times and the Post uh, every day, uh, and I also read the, the Atlantic is wonderful. The digital uh, Atlantic is terrific, as is the New Yorker. And, you know, I am more and more going to various newsletters. Uh, Jim Fallows on Substack and Helen Cox Richardson. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on foreign policy, and there's a site, uh, Ian Brenner, it's called G Zero Signal Newsletter. Uh, you know, I do that, and, and, and if I want to find out about healthcare, there's a place called STAT. So the habits are different than they were before. There's a lot of information out there, and some of it's good, a lot of it's not. Yeah, there's a piece, I, I could not recommend it more, that is on the Atlantic site by Kurt Anderson, who I think is probably the sharpest observer of American culture that exists. He has a book called Fantasyland. And, and this is how, talking about COVID, I remember our friend Don McNeil, who I think is on Substack now, pointed out that, 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 that actually deaths of Trump voters could make an impact in November. And, and Kurt goes into how sort of death cults have been, you know, part of history, world history. It's a, it's a it's a stunning piece. I, I agree with you on everything. I am a particular fan of New York magazine. I, I love the New Yorker too, you know, because I, I as you know, I, I literally, no person I find myself more in agreement with than John Shape. But the other, that guy, Eric Levitz, is very good on that site. I think Ed Kilgore is a, is a wise commentator on American politics. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I like most people, and I, I, I find it to be 
enlightening. I, 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 for lack of a better term, I, I tend to gravitate more toward establishment news organizations because I know that they have the the resources to to you know really do some interesting stories. And again, I, I go back to that New York Times story on uh, the Pascagoula Hospital. Uh, I mean, and that was some good. That was some stunningly good journalism. I think it can be frustrating. I think they can get things wrong in uh, everything else, but yeah, I, I think you're been the PBS NewsHour. It's just you know the product is so good. It's and it, it's one thing that I actually like. It's very predictable. I mean, there's a very much of a culture on that show. I mean, obviously, was on it recently. You know, it it it. There's no shouting. There's no interrupting. There's none of that bullshit you get on on some cable TV channels. So I I. I but you and I have a, a, a really similar view of the, of the news consumption. And when you, when you go to that New York Times site, just every day look and see if Tom Etzel's there because yeah, anything he writes. Yeah, call you know, the you day. I, I, it was, I, I got to reread it. Yeah, I haven't read yeah. it yet, I'm, I, I, but I'm going to. Etzel is, is, you know, he, he's always in. And the Rui Teixeira piece that we, 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 we mentioned, I, I can't recommend that enough and it's just the kind of thing that our listeners will 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 completely understand james our final question is from john in this is in the sea ranch california which he says is three hours north of san francisco man that's 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 right close to oregon yeah Uh, but he says isn't it obvious that mitch mcconnell will kill a filibuster in about 10 minutes if Republicans take the Senate and pass laws that will establish fascist Republican rule for generations, laws that will be upheld by this Supreme Court. This is John's question. John goes on to say, therefore, we can't lose 2022. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know where John is. Uh, I could see, I know that Sea Ranch Lakes is in North San Diego County, but I've seen ranches. Now, this I, he says is right, three right. hours I, north. I, it's probably, a, I, again, my guess is it's somewhere close to Eureka, California, but yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know what they're going to do? They've already done it. They stole the presidential election in 2000. They stole Supreme Court seats. They stormed the Capitol and people are defending them. All right? at, at some point, we just need a better public. I, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, it's just exhausting to to see what's going on in this country and to just have people acquiesce to it. And, I, I, you know, I, I love doing the show. It gives me a, a, a time to vent. But I'm in a particularly venable mood right now because it's just outrageous, the stuff that I'm seeing. Yeah, I agree. All right, keep those. Please keep those questions coming. They are great. And if we didn't get to your question this week, send it again for next week because they are, there were far more questions than we could possibly get to. Hey, James, every day, tens of thousands of trees are cut down to make single-use paper products that are flushed or thrown away into our overflowing landfills. That's important because our forests currently remove around 25% of the carbon we put into the atmosphere, making them a crucial part of fighting climate change. Luckily, real paper is here to help in that fight. 
Real paper is a sustainably made product that helps reduce deforestation and single-use plastic waste. All real paper products are 100% plastic-free and made without virgin tree fibers, meaning no trees are cut down to make their toilet paper or paper towels. Real presents a premium, sustainable alternative, so you don't have to sacrifice quality to help the planet. It's a small change with a big impact. So far, Real Paper has eliminated over 250,000 pieces of single-use plastics. 250,000. And each purchase of Real helps fund access to clean sanitation around the world. Now, you can't beat that, James. I, you know, you, you can't. And it, 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 it sounds like the more that you think about this, the, the, the smarter and better product that it is. I, 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 the idea, you know, you know, I didn't be particularly graphic about it, but toilet paper usage is, is around the world is high, to say the least. And, you know, th- th- that's how we're going to, if we if we win this climate fight, you know, we're going to do it, you know, on many different fronts. And, you know, this is a, this is an important front. It really is. And it, it, it the indispensable product. It is. Now, Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website, and all orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. Now, if you head to realpaper.com slash warroom and sign up for a subscription using our code warroom at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's realpaper.com slash warroom or enter the promo code warroom to get 30% off your first order or look for the link in our show notes. Now it's time for our Outrage of the Week. I'm going to yield to Mr. Carville. Well, thank you, Mr. Hunt. And uh, for our outrage, uh, uh, our fine producers are going to play a clip that I urge our listeners to listen very closely to. And Dr. Reiner, you you told Barry Weiss essentially she needed to grow up. Yeah, she needed to grow up because she's acting like a child. When you say you don't want to play this game anymore and you're going to take your ball and go home, you're acting like like a child. I I like the uh, sacrifices that she enumerated. But that she stripped off her clothes when she got home and, and then she cleaned the grocery cans. Meanwhile, my colleagues in hospitals all around the country went into care for people dying from this virus and continue to do that every day. Man our ERs and our ICUs every day. And for the first year of this pandemic, they did that without any protection of a vaccine. That's the sacrifice they made. And all that we've done is ask the public to wear a mask when, when you go out and about and get vaccinated, right? So I'm glad she's, I'm glad she's done with it. But I, I sort of feel like this country has been in a boat that is filled with water. And some of us have been trying to bail out, bail the water out of this boat for the last two years. And now we have people like, like uh, Barry Weiss basically saying, I'm done. I'm not bailing the water out anymore. And when yeah. somebody who is, who is relatively young and relatively healthy says that, what they're saying is, I'll be okay if I get this virus. Screw you. doesn't matter to me what happens, what happens to you. That's the message I get from her. So, as you heard, uh, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, who I happen to know, uh, not very well, but done stuff, he, he is Dick Cheney's heart doctor. 
And Dick Cheney's had six heart attacks and an artificial heart, and he's 81, just celebrated his 81st birthday. So I'm pretty sure that Dr. Weiner, Reiner is, is a highly competent physician and knows what he's talking about. Barry Weiss is a person I actually agree with some on some things. She's, you know, kind of really outspoken against extreme wokeness. It's just become and, – and Bill Maher is, is, is a friend of mine. I'm on his show. I, I agree with Bill on, on many things. But, Barry, there's a certain thing that, that – it's, it's, it's all about me. I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. And Dr. Reiner just points out because if you read that in conjunction with the story about the hospital in Pascagoula, and these nurses are just frizzled at the end of the day. They're being screamed at. They've been called names. They've risked themselves. And, and people dying and families. And, I, 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 and, and Dr. Reiner, he's, he's not a – he's a very competent, serious guy. And I thought he just made a brilliant point. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, this is not – this is not – not all about you. And I, 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 I'm glad that CNN brought it up, and I, I, I was stunningly pleased with Dr. Reiner's response because I think it reminds us that what, none of us are the center of this universe. James, all I can do is join your outrage because it is so well put. Uh, and when you think of all those people, the devotion that those healthcare workers every day, many of whom, you know, have, have gotten sick themselves, and what they're doing under incredible conditions. And for those who say they're sick of it, uh, I'm sick of them. Yeah. So, anyway. Shock. You know, this has been such a disappointing the, the, the reaction. To this, on multiple fronts, has just been grotesquely disappointing. And you and I talked about this. When this is over and we got to get through it, we need to really look how we organize public health in the United States. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty bifurcated system. I don't know. You know, with CDC, the NIH, every I think every county in the country has a public health office. Every city has a public, you know, of any, of any substance has public health offices. We got a gazillion schools of public health, and I'm sure they're all good. But but the the response to this, and the guy that wrote the piece in in the Times and about Japan. And their death rate per 100,000 compared to ours, I know it's a different country, it's a different culture, et cetera, et cetera. But this has been a massive – I'd give the American public a, a C minus, a D plus on this. I yeah, say well, that. look at – I mean, Japan is different, but look at Germany too. They're much better and they're a very similar right. country anyways. And, and, but, uh, but you, and by the way, you read – and you look at the difference between these unvaccinated people. I, I'm just sick of these fucking people. Any story that talks about hospitalizations or deaths these days and doesn't have in the first three paragraphs – what the percentage of unvaccinated are is an irresponsible piece of journalism. Yeah. Absolutely it is. Right. And the Washington Post, which I you know, am very high on, had a piece about you know, deaths uh, surging in Maryland yesterday, cases. And I, I had to read to about the 10th paragraph for find out that most of these are unvaccinated people. That is relevant. Irrelevant? Shit, I guess it is relevant. <laughs> I, I, anyway, I mean, if, if anything, the vaccines are just 
they just keep doing well. I mean, it's just time and time again. How, how can anybody possibly, possibly, other than the few, there, there are some that have legitimate medical reasons. I just, I'm, I'm done with these people, man. It's just too goddamn stupid for words. And you're right. I saw that thing in a post and I read these stories and you know, Drudge does this. You know, unvaxxed person gets it and they, they highlight everything. I think the death rate is like 21 times higher among unvaccinated people. Well, but that's not, that's a pretty good number. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good number. Sure is. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, smith.ai, Raycon, and Real Paper in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.